You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 35 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Mary Boykin Chestnut was the wife of James Chestnut. In 1858, James had been elected a U.S. Senator from South Carolina, but he resigned in December 1860 when South Carolina seceded from the Union. In April of 1861, he was serving as an aide to Confederate Brigadier General Beauregard. In February 1861, Mary Chestnut began chronicling her thoughts in a series of diaries that she kept throughout most of the Civil War. The Chestnuts moved in the very highest circles of Southern society, so the diaries provide an inside look at the political and social life of the South during the Civil War. In April 1861, Mary witnessed the bombardment of Fort Sumter. In her Charleston hotel room, she heard the opening shot. Her entry for April 12th reads in part, quote, I do not pretend to sleep. How can I? If Anderson does not accept terms at four, the orders are he shall be fired upon. I count four. St. Michael's bells chime out, and I begin to hope. At half past four, the heavy booming of a cannon. I spring out of bed, and on my knees prostrate, I prayed as I never prayed before. End quote. Mary then went to the roof of her hotel, joining other excited Charleston residents who rushed out into the pre-dawn darkness to watch the Confederate battery shell Fort Sumter. Out at Fort Sumter, after Mary Chestnut's husband James and another of Beauregard's aides, Stephen Lee, had informed Major Robert Anderson that the Confederate batteries would open fire shortly, Anderson had told his officers and men that the fort would not begin to return fire until after sunrise. Sumter's defenders could accomplish little until then anyway, as the garrison had no lights, since oil for the lamps had long since run out. After Chesnut and Lee departed, the only other order Major Anderson gave was to raise the fort's flag. John Thompson, a private in Sumter's garrison, sent a long letter two weeks later to his father back in County Derry, Ireland. Thompson told his father he felt a surge of pride as, quote, We hoisted our colors, the glorious star-spangled banner, and quietly awaited the enemy's fire, end quote. An immigrant from Ireland, Private Thompson, like most of the rest of the garrison at Fort Sumter, was foreign-born. At Sumter, of the 73 enlisted men whose birthplaces are known, just 13 were from the United States. As for the antebellum U.S. Army as a whole, some two-thirds of the men were foreigners, mostly German and Irish. 
While it was considered noble and patriotic for American men to flock to the colors when the country was at war, service in the rank and file of the peacetime U.S. Army was considered a last resort for immigrants and other men with no other prospects for gainful employment. Really, enlisted men in the antebellum U.S. Army were considered the dregs of 19th century American society. And yet, once the Civil War began, while about a third of the pre-war officer corps would resign their commissions and join the Confederacy, only 26 privates out of 15,000 ended up leaving the ranks and defecting to the rebels. So, while the enlisted men of the antebellum U.S. Army may have been considered the dregs of 19th century American society, they were, by and large, more loyal to the Union than were their officers. As for Private Thompson, he would tell his father back in Ireland that after the Stars and Stripes was run up its staff and disappeared into the darkness above, quote, at 4.30 a.m. the first shell came hissing through the air and burst right over our heads. The thrill that ran through our veins at this time was indescribable. None were afraid. The stern, defiant look on each man's countenance plainly told that fear was no part of his constitution, but something like an expression of awe crept over the features of everyone. End quote. White-haired Edmund Ruffin, the famous old fire-eater from Virginia, had come down to South Carolina to get in on the start of the war. After arriving in Charleston, Ruffin had found a musket, gone out to Cummings Point on Morris Island, where he joined up with the local Palmetto Guard Militia. The guard's captain had told Ruffin that he could have the honor of firing the first shot from Cummings Point, so after the first shell was fired from Fort Johnson, signaling the beginning of the Confederate bombardment, Ruffin yanked the lanyard on a big 64-pound Columbiad and sent a shell screaming toward Sumter. Soon, over 40 Confederate guns were keeping up a steady fire, from Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island, from the ironclad floating battery, from Fort Johnson on James Island, and from Cummings Point, where the new Blakely rifle had been emplaced, from all of Beauregard's carefully placed batteries, a ring of fire blasted away at silent Fort Sumter. Out at Fort Sumter, the garrison of 87 officers and enlisted men, as well as 43 loyal workmen who had remained at the fort, they all hunkered down in the darkness and waited for first light. Finally, the eastern horizon began to lighten, and then, a bit after 6 o'clock on the morning of April 12, 1861, roll call was taken, the men breakfasted on a meager helping of old and foul salt pork, and then the garrison prepared to return fire. By this time, the soldiers and workmen had managed to set up 27 guns up on the open parapet, and another 21 cannon were emplaced in the lower tiers, protected within the casement. And then five gun tubes located around the interior parade had been jury-rigged as mortars. Major Anderson didn't have anywhere near enough trained men to operate all those guns, and besides, he wanted to conserve his ammunition, since he had only 700 cartridges. And so he told his two company commanders to work in shifts. Captain Abner Doubleday and Company E would be the first to return the Confederates' fire, and then a few hours later, Captain Truman Seymour and Company H would take over. It was just after 6.30 when Sumter's garrison opened fire on the Confederate batteries that had already been shelling the fort for over two hours. 
When Major Anderson expressed no interest in firing Sumter's first shot, Captain Doubleday lost no time in claiming the honor of firing the first shot at the rebels. The garrison was soon firing nine or ten guns, but they quickly found that while they didn't have any trouble hitting the Confederate positions, their shells did frustratingly little damage to the enemy fortifications. That's because Anderson, believing the open parapet up on the fort's top tier was too exposed to the Confederates' fire, had ordered his men to only use the cannon located within the more protected casement of the lower tiers. But the trouble was, the guns on the lower tiers were the smaller pieces, while the bigger cannon, which might do some real damage to the Confederate emplacements, those big guns were up on the off-limits exposed parapet. But at least twice, the frustration of using the fort's smaller guns got the better of a few of the garrison's enlisted men, and they snuck up to the parapet and fired off several of the larger guns, which were already loaded and aimed at the Confederate positions. By late morning, Major Anderson realized that at their present rate of fire, the garrison would be entirely out of ammunition by that afternoon, so he ordered that fewer guns be used. And so, after that, the men were only using six cannon to return the Confederates' fire. And then, besides the worry about their ammunition supply, another source of anxiety for Sumter's garrison was the fact that on that first day, fires broke out several times in the fort's wooden buildings. You see, Sumter's exterior walls were made of rock and brick, but then constructed around the interior of those walls, that is, on three sides inside the fort, there were wooden buildings that served as enlisted men's barracks and officers' quarters. And remember that Sumter was designed to have a garrison of over 600 men. Um, but anyway, the design of these interior buildings, those barracks, was a serious uh, flaw since their peaked roofs and chimneys actually jutted above the fort's walls and thus could be targeted by enemy gunfire. And so these fires broke out in the vulnerable wooden buildings three times during the first day, but the garrison managed to put them out. While the action inside Charleston Harbor was heating up, outside the harbor, Gustavus Fox was beside himself with fear and frustration. He was fearful for Sumter's garrison, and he was frustrated that his plan to relieve the fort was falling apart. In spite of the Confederate bombardment, and despite the fact that neither the USS Powhatan nor the Tugs had shown up, Fox still hoped to send supplies and reinforcements into the harbor and to Sumter once it was dark enough on the night of the 12th. But without the Tugs, which had either turned back or been scattered by the gale, Fox was handicapped as to how he would get the men and provisions over the bar and into the harbor. And so Fox waited all day on the 12th for the tugs to show up, and when they didn't appear, he reluctantly scuttled his plans to reinforce and resupply Sumter after dark. Certain, though, that the Powhatan would arrive during the night, Fox took the Baltic out to the rendezvous point ten miles outside the harbor, and there he made signals all night. But, of course, the powerful warship never showed up. You guys will remember from the last episode that Secretary of State William Seward had secretly sent the Powhatan on the expedition down to Fort Pickens in western Florida, and so the powerful warship was never going to show up at Charleston, but Gustavus Fox didn't know that yet. And of course, inside the harbor, the Sumter garrison didn't know anything about what was going on outside the harbor with the relief expedition. As darkness started to fall on April 12th, 
All Robert Anderson and his men knew was that the war had started, the enemy fire was taking its toll, but the stars and stripes was still flying defiantly above the battered fort. As darkness began to fall that first day, April 12, 1861, rain also began to pour down and a strong wind whipped up rough waves. Major Anderson had already decided that, to save ammunition, he would silence Sumter's cannons throughout the night. Eventually, the Confederate fire also tapered off and then settled into a pattern where a few mortar shells were dropped onto the fort every 15 or so minutes throughout the night. And then, as sunrise lit up the harbor on Saturday, the 13th, everyone could see that the storm of the previous night had blown itself out, and the beautiful morning was the first installment on what promised to be a lovely day in Charleston, South Carolina. Lovely, except for the fact that it was the second day of the war. Out at Sumter, after another meager breakfast, the garrison went to man their guns. But there actually wasn't much to do since the beleaguered fort's fire was limited to one gun every ten minutes to conserve cartridges. By 8 a.m., Sumter's wooden barracks were once again on fire. The vulnerable buildings had been hit by red-hot cannonballs that the Confederate batteries had heated up in furnaces before firing them at the fort. The garrison had been able to put out the fires that broke out the day before, but now it was a different story. Today, the weary men simply couldn't stay ahead of the spreading flames, and before long, the roaring blaze soon spread out of control. Major Anderson grew anxious about the fort's magazine, where the ammunition was stored, and so he gave the order for as much powder as possible to be removed before the heavy copper doors of the magazine were sealed against the spreading flames. Only about 50 of the 300 remaining barrels were taken out before the fire got too close for comfort and the magazine was shut up and earth was packed around the doors. The men had put wet blankets over cartridges and armed shells that were waiting to be fired from Sumter's cannon. But then to the men's horror, as smoke and cinders swirled through the fort, they saw that the precious barrels of salvaged powder were once again in danger from the blaze, and so Major Anderson reluctantly ordered that all but five barrels be thrown out of the fort and into the sea. As the roaring flames rose high above the fort's walls, the Confederate batteries increased their rate of fire, so that Sumter's garrison found itself engulfed in a nightmare of shot and shell and flame and smoke. In his book, Allegiance, Fort Sumter, Charleston, and the Beginnings of the Civil War, historian David Detzer describes the reaction to the awesome sight of the flames rising high above Sumter's walls. Quote, Charleston citizens again came out to watch the battle. Anna Brackett, the school teacher, was there. She said, Women of all ages and ranks of life look eagerly out with spy glasses and opera glasses. Children talk and laugh and move back and forth in the small moving space as if they were at a public show. Then the crowd spotted the black smoke and the awful flames. Spectators shouted out the news, first with glee. Brackett heard a boy shout, now you'll see that old flag go down. After a while, however, some spectators felt growing concern for the fort's surviving occupants. A few days later, a woman described her feelings to her children. We forgot our people. We forgot everything for a few moments, but the gallant band within the burning crater. 
Even tough Edmund Ruffin felt moved as the flames rose above the fort. I looked on, he wrote, with my feelings of joy and exultation at our now certain prospect of speedy success, mixed with awe and horror of the danger of this terrible calamity, and pity for the men exposed to the consequences, and with high admiration for the indomitable spirit of the brave commander. End quote. Meanwhile, outside the harbor, Gustavus Fox finally learned that the Powhatan had been diverted on another mission. He was shocked, to say the least. By this time, the men on the ships could see the terrible flames and huge billows of smoke rising from Fort Sumter. Everyone in the little flotilla wanted to assist the battered fort, but without local pilots, and since the buoys and markers for the shipping channels had been removed by the South Carolinians, the danger of trying to run past the dangerous shoals and into the harbor in daylight was just too great a risk. And so it was agreed that after dark, an effort would be made to use ship's boats to row into the harbor and land men and supplies at Sumter. But that afternoon, even as the flotilla set to work preparing for the rescue attempt, they noticed that the fort's flagstaff had been shot away, and then all firing ceased and didn't start up again. What had happened? Was it over? They decided to send a boat into the harbor under a flag of truce to find out. After being hit numerous times during the course of the bombardment, Sumter's immense flagstaff, as tall as a ten-story building, finally crashed to the ground at about one o'clock on the afternoon of the 13th. The garrison rushed to put up a temporary staff, but as shot and shell continued to rain down on the fort, it would take time to accomplish the task. Upon seeing Sumter's flag go down, General James Simons, commander of the Confederate forces on Morris Island, decided to send a party, including James Chesnut, out to the fort to see if Anderson wished to surrender. But before those men could set off on their mission, this dipstick named Wigfall... You mean the former U.S. Senator from Texas, Louis Wigfall, who had traveled to South Carolina and volunteered to serve as an aide to General Beauregard. Uh-huh. So, this dipstick named Wigfall sees the fort's flag go down and decides, without consulting anyone, to commandeer a rowboat and go out from Morris Island to Sumter where he can be the one to garner everlasting fame for himself by accepting Anderson's surrender. And so his boat gets to Sumter, and by this time the Stars and Stripes are back up, so Wigfall's fellow Confederates have resumed shelling the place. But nevertheless, Wigfall jumps out of the boat, and with a white handkerchief tied to the tip of his sword, he runs around in the midst of the shell fire, trying to find some place to enter the fort. Well, he finally just reaches up and hoists himself up to an open embrasure where he scares the bejesus out of one of the garrison. But after he's hauled inside the fort, Wigfall demands to see Major Anderson, saying that General Beauregard wants to stop the bombardment. In his book, Days of Defiance, Sumter's Secession, and the Coming of the Civil War, Maury Klein explains, quote, in fact, Wigfall had not talked to Beauregard at all and had no authority, but that did not stop him. Just then, Anderson arrived. Wigfall told the Major that Beauregard wished the fighting stopped and would give Anderson almost any terms. 
The major replied that he had already stated his terms to Beauregard, but that he was willing to evacuate at once instead of noon on the 15th. Those were the only conditions he would accept. They went over the original offer. The garrison could take its arms and, pri and private and company property, salute its flag on lowering, and have transportation to any northern port. Wigfall agreed and returned to his boat. While he crossed back to Cummings Point, Anderson lowered his flag and replaced it with a white one. The firing everywhere ceased. End quote. After watching Lewis Wigfall set off on his one-man mission, James Chesnut and the others had never left Morris Island. But over at Charleston, General Beauregard had also seen Sumter's flag go down, and he had sent off his own delegation to the fort to see if Major Anderson wished to surrender. As Beauregard's emissaries had been making their way across the harbor, they had seen the Stars and Stripes go back up. So they turned around and started back for Charleston. But then shortly after that, they saw the Stars and Stripes taken down and a white flag run up in its place. So they had their boat turn around again and they headed for the fort. Major Anderson came out to greet these new visitors. When they told Anderson they had come from General Beauregard, the Major was a bit perplexed and said that Louis Wigfall had already been there on behalf of the General and negotiated the fort's evacuation. Now it was the Confederates' turn to be confused, and they said that was impossible as Wigfall had not even been to headquarters for two days and certainly wasn't authorized to offer terms on Beauregard's behalf. When the men's words sunk in, and he realized that that dipstick Wigfall had simply been freelancing, well, that was too much for Robert Anderson. Under unimaginable strain, his food nearly gone, his ammunition nearly gone, his fort ablaze, the promised relief nowhere in sight, and now this insult was really too much. Anderson said he would raise his flag again, he was sorry he'd ever lowered it, and he would order his batteries to open fire again. The Confederates were taken aback, and they convinced the Major not to open hostilities again until they could return to Charleston and see General Beauregard. But before they could leave the fort, another boat arrived at Sumter with two members of Beauregard's staff. They said the General had heard what had happened with Wigfall and had sent them out to Sumter, authorized to accept all terms except the saluting of the flag. But after a bit of nego negotiation, even that point was accepted by the Confederate officers, and an agreement was formalized for the evacuation of Sumter to take place the next morning, Sunday, April 14th. And so that was the momentous news that the boat from the Union flotilla received when it entered the harbor under a flag of truce to discover what had happened at the fort. Arrangements for the garrison's evacuation the next day were duly made, and so the expedition that had sailed south to relieve Fort Sumter would instead be carrying Major Anderson and his men back home. Gustavus Fox would sail back north enraged and embittered over the diversion of the Powhatan. To the end of his days, Fox remained convinced that if he'd only had that powerful warship, he could have forced his way inside Charleston Harbor and successfully delivered reinforcements and supplies to Fort Sumter. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But there was still one more act in the drama to be played out. Incredibly, there had been no fatalities on either side during the bombardment. But on Sunday morning, April 14, 1861, during the ceremony to salute the lowering of Sumter's flag, the first man to be killed in the Civil War would lose his life during the accidental firing of one of the fort's cannon. Since the terms of the evacuation had been agreed upon the day before, Major Anderson had had his men working to fashion enough cartridges for a hundred-gun salute to the Stars and Stripes. And so, on Sunday morning, the garrison formed on the parade inside the fort, and the gunners took their places at the seven cannon that would fire the salute. Forty-some shots were fired without incident, but then Private Daniel Howe drove home another cartridge in one of the, com- in one of the Columbiads. The man assigned to keep his thumb over the breech vent must have neglected to do so, because as Howe rammed in the next shot, the leftover powder in the barrel ignited, touching off the cartridge that Howe was pushing in. The blast ripped off Howe's arm and killed him. The stiff breeze blowing into the fort then blew a spark, or a flaming scrap of clothing or cartridge, back into the shells that were piled up behind the gun, and the resulting explosion leveled the entire gun crew. One of the wounded men, James Galloway, would die in Charleston several days later. After the smoke cleared and the wounded had been attended to, the garrison's hearts, naturally enough, weren't in the ceremony anymore, and so the salute to the flag was cut off at 50 shots, and then the men gathered on the narrow shelf outside the fort's walls as a Confederate chaplain held a quick funeral service for Private Howe. Daniel Howe had immigrated to the United States from Tipperary, Ireland, and had joined the Army in 1849. Upon enlisting, the stocky young Irishman had been assigned to the 1st Artillery Regiment. He was 35 years old when he was killed at Fort Sumter. Private Howe left no relatives to grieve him or to claim a pension, and had it not been his misfortune to be the first soldier to be killed in America's terrible civil war, his name would no doubt have been forgotten altogether. As we start to wrap things up, there's something we wanted to be sure to cover in this episode. We want to slide this in here because we realize we mentioned Fort Pickens down in Florida a few times, but then it sort of fell off the radar as we focused on Fort Sumter. And we focused on Fort Sumter because that was really the focus of the public's attention in both the North and South, and Sumter, of course, is the spot where the Civil War started. But both the federal and Confederate governments were also very aware of the importance of Fort Pickens there in Pensacola Harbor. As with Sumter, the Confederates dearly wanted to have possession of Fort Pickens. But as we mentioned previously, the situation there was different than it was in Charleston. For the Southerners, Fort Pickens was a much tougher military nut to crack. 
mostly because the fort was located at the tip of Santa Rosa Island, which is out at the entrance to the harbor at Pensacola, and so the Union ships could put reinforcements and provisions ashore relatively easily from the Gulf of Mexico side of the island, beyond the range of Confederate cannon. Whereas at Sumter, the Union ships would have had to run through a gauntlet of Confederate guns to get inside Charleston Harbor. Exactly. And so anyway, all of that's to say that the Confederacy never managed to get their hands on Fort Pickens. The Union held on to it. But if you're interested in reading some more about the situation there with Fort Pickens, a new Civil War magazine just came out. Well, depending on when you're listening to this, um, I mean, right now it's the summer of 2013, but the first issue of Civil War Quarterly has an article titled Second Sumter, the Struggle for Pensacola, and it's about what all went on there with Fort Pickens. And it looks like this new magazine, Civil War Quarterly, is put out by the same folks who do Military Heritage Magazine, if you're familiar with that publication. So there you go. So that's what happened with Fort Pickens. But now that we've reached the surrender of Fort Sumter with this episode of the podcast, there's one more thing we want to be sure to do before we move on with our story. And what we'd like to do is answer two questions. Those questions are, what caused secession and what caused the war? And we can actually answer those two questions very briefly and easily. What caused secession? Slavery. What caused the war? Secession. And that's it. Thanks for coming out. As you make your way to the exits, please. All right. Um, So we did want to point out that we spent, what, like 30 episodes just getting to the start of the war because we wanted to lay out the historical evidence that if you go clear back to the earliest days of America's history and then work your way forward from there, it's very clear the answer to the question, what caused secession? is slavery. And here we're really just talking about the first seven slaveholding states to secede from the Union. The circumstances regarding the second wave of secession with Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, and North Carolina, those circumstances are a bit different. Right. But again, so what caused secession? We can answer slavery. But we wanted to point out that technically, or logically, It's a different question to then ask, what caused the war? Since, because disunion had become a fact, that doesn't necessarily mean that war was unavoidable. But actually, most scholars think that once secession happened, or once disunion was a fact, then the outbreak of hostilities really was inevitable. That's because for decades, slavery had been at the center of the division between the country's two sections, between North and South. But after Abraham Lincoln's election, with the secession of South Carolina and her sister slaveholding states, the issue shifted. Now, at the center of the struggle between North and South, the issue was the act of secession itself. I mean, you have to remember that the threat of disunion had always been lurking around the edges of the struggle over slavery. Over the years, Southern extremists had used the threat of disunion to wring concessions from the North. 
But now, with the rebellious actions of South Carolina and the other cotton states, the federal government had to directly confront the issue of secession. And James Buchanan, for various reasons, was unwilling to exercise decisive leadership in attempting to nip secession in the bud. But once Abraham Lincoln took office, as we've already seen, when push came to shove, Lincoln wasn't willing to sacrifice the Union in order to let the southern states depart in peace. And we'll talk more in a future episode about how important that concept of nationhood, of an indivisible Union, was to the North. But in April 1861, what it really came down to was that Lincoln was willing to risk war over Fort Sumter because he wasn't willing to sacrifice the Union in order to let the southern states depart in peace. So we hope some of that made sense. What we really wanted to point out is that for decades, the debate over the future of slavery had occupied center stage. But once disunion became a fact, the issue shifted so that now the act of secession itself occupied center stage, and it will be the central issue at the start of the war between North and South. Another way to think of it is is that for decades the question had been, will slavery be allowed to expand into new territory? But with secession, the question then became, will disunion be permitted to break apart the nation? by means of the formation of a southern slaveholding republic? Or will there be a war to decide if the United States of America will continue to be one nation, an indivisible union? And at Fort Sumter, Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, each in his own way, each answered that question by saying, let there be war. Anyway, the shorthand is really just to remember what caused secession? Slavery. And what caused the war? Secession. The southern states seceded because of slavery. And then Abraham Lincoln was willing to go to war to save the nation from secession. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. But actually, I think that article about Fort Pickens in the Civil War Quarterly magazine can be our book recommendation for this episode, because we really wanted to take a few minutes here to let you guys know that now that we've hit the start of the war, Tracy and I have sat down and kind of made out a list of the things, that is, the topics and events and whatnot, that we'd ideally like to cover as far as the war years. And then eventually, we were also going to get to Reconstruction. But anyways, you can probably tell we've already invested quite a bit in gathering the resources just to get us through the past 30-some-odd episodes and up to this point with Fort Sumter. And we already have mostly what we would need to hit the Civil War's high points. But we realize there's a lot more than just a quick run-through of the war's major campaigns and battles that we want to cover with you guys. And in looking at all the things about the Civil War that we want to share with y'all, we came up with a wish list that actually has over a 100 books, magazines, and journal articles. So we thought we'd let y'all know that if you'd like to help us get those additional resources for the podcast, you can go to the website, and once you're there, you'll find a way to make a donation and help us out. Yeah, 
at the website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. At the very top of the sidebar to the right, you'll see a donate button. And just so you know, we're not a charity. We're just a history podcast. So it's not tax deductible. You'll just be helping us out as far as books and stuff. And we also have a, a monthly cost for the server where we keep or store all the episodes of the podcast so that you guys can download them. And anyway, we just wanted to lay that out there. If you help us out, great. Thank you. But if not, then no worries. Uh, we're committed to the podcast and we're going to see it through. Tracy and I think this is an important story, maybe the most important story in our country's history. And so, like I said, we're committed to telling it here on the podcast. And we want to thank all of y'all who have been so wonderful and taken the time to encourage Rich and me about the podcast. You don't know how much we appreciate hearing from y'all, whether it's by email or through Facebook or through those great reviews y'all are still leaving on iTunes. And we did want to give a special shout out to KD, who not only left us our very first five-star review on the Canadian's iTunes site, but he also sent us a great email letting us know he's listening to this podcast about the American Civil War while he's in the middle of Saskatchewan. So thanks, KD. And as we close, we also want to thank Spiritwood Music for permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, at the beginning and end of every episode. Uh, we just think that's the absolutely perfect song for the podcast. And last but not least, thanks to y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll look at how Abraham Lincoln's call for 75,000 volunteers to put down the rebellion set off the second wave of secession. We hope you'll join us for that, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.